0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today we're going to talk about one of the hazards birds face in their migratory paths. Well, if I was going to design the perfect bird migrant bird-killing device, I might take a great big reflective piece of glass, put it on a major flyway, an area where lots of ber- migrant birds fly, and then put a lot of lights around it to attract the birds. Sounds a lot like a skyscraper in a big city these days. And that's sort of what it is. In many of the flyways are big cities with big buildings that are largely covered with glass, that at night are lit up. And many songbirds migrate at night. Some shorebirds too, but, but a lot of songbirds, especially small songbirds migrate at night when it's safer You know, there aren't so many uh, falcons flying around that can see them and other things to kill them. But when they're flying at night, they they find their location in part by the night sky. And when there are a lot of ambient lights, man-made lights, uh, polluting the sky at night, these birds can get confused. They actually seem to be attracted to these lights. And the night lights attract the birds to the cities where big reflective glass-colored buildings uh, look like, more sky straight ahead or maybe more birds straight ahead of them, and and they crash into these buildings and die. By some estimates, up to 600 million birds die with building collisions, and a large part of these happen during migration in cities where these big buildings are located. Well, there are people who are upset about this. One of those groups of people are the Safe Flights group out of the New York City Audubon Society. And today I have as my guest, Alex Israel. Alex has been active in the Safe Flights program in New York City, and we talk about that in our podcast today. I think you'll enjoy hearing from Alex and more about the hazards posed by big buildings and big cities with lights on at night, and hear about the Safe Flights program. So welcome to the Bird Banner podcast, Alex Israel. Alex, welcome to the Bird Banner podcast. Thanks for being on with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be on.
0: I appreciate it. Alex, I I got a hold of the New York Audubon, and they recommended you as a person real interested in the Safe Flights program that uh, the New York City Audubon is running. Tell me how you're involved in that and a little background.
1: Sure. Um, So I can start by giving a little bit of background and context about what the problem is that Project Safe Flight is trying to solve, and then I can get into a little bit of how the organization is trying to solve it. So New York is this major flyway for birds during migration periods and really what that means is that there's a lot of birds, um, millions of birds that pass through the city during migration periods of spring and fall, which obviously for us is, is great for birding, but is not always so great for the birds mortality rates. Sure. So Audubon, the New York City branch, estimates that there's, I think, between 90,000 and 200 something thousand birds that die each year coming through the city. and that's just New York City. So New York and other cities with lots of buildings and skyscrapers poses two big problems for birds. That's light and glass. So starting with light, birds that are migrating overnight, Get really super disoriented by the light that's coming from the city, um, and they get trapped. Okay. They get trapped and um, stuck by these lit up skyscrapers, and they'll end up flying around in circles, really, until they hit something or another bird or exhaust themselves. So, so light is is a top issue, and that obviously applies across any city that that attracts a lot of birds overnight with the light that draws them in. So then the right. other one is glass, which is, I think, the main thing that the Project Safe Flight volunteers like myself are addressing on our daily basis. So the glass causes collisions. And with a lot of the skyscraper glass, at least the kind that we're kind of talking about here, it's not like a transparent glass, that, like a window that you could see through it. More like yeah, a exactly. mirror, isn't it? so it's super reflective. And the birds, not really understanding what a reflection is, think that they're flying into the sky or uh, uh, you know the sun when it's actually a window. And even when the glass is clear, actually, some buildings that have you know trees and plants and other foliage, the bird will fly towards that, thinking it's shelter of some kind. So uh, the point being that glass, a bird doesn't stand either, under doesn't understand either way that glass has this barrier and they'll fly straight into it, causing these collisions.
0: Yes. We've all seen that on just a, you of know, course. a window in your house. And, and houses, sort of
1: standard, you know, non non-skyscrapers outside of cities, I think are something like 50% of collisions too. So it's, it's not just these skyscrapers that are an issue. But at least in New York City, that's the issue that we're trying to solve with Project Safe Flight.
0: Right. Are there similar projects in other cities? Today, I was doing a little research and it looked like New York City is not the the worst culprit of us. Chicago is kind of at the top of the list for cities with uh, collision problems uh, and other cities too. Are there, are there analogous programs going on other places? Do you know? I
1: know that Atlanta has one that's modeled very similarly to ours in New York. And I know that Chicago has been at the forefront of um, legislation on a city basis, but I'm not sure how many others or, or how many... Um, outposts have have kind of cropped up. I know that ours has been around since 1997, which is quite a while, um, comparatively.
0: Been a while, yeah. So what are you doing? What 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 actions sure. are you taking? So How are you trying to make a difference? So the way
1: the organization, and it's run out of New York City Audubon, so the way it works is that there are a whole bunch of volunteers that sign up based on the season, and each day of the week, each of the volunteers has a certain route that they will patrol. And uh, these routes are preset, predetermined by Audubon. They, they do their data crunching. Um, since I've been doing it, I've been running the downtown west route, which has five buildings, all super tall skyscrapers um, with, you know, corporate daily offices. So I, the Goldman Sachs building is like the main offender for me, but basically what we do is we walk around the perimeter of these buildings and look for birds who have collided or um, been injured in some other way by the building. And most of the time, at least in my experience, these birds are dead. So that's a data point that we can capture and report back on. But in some cases, the birds are still alive. And we will bring those birds to um, a rehabilitation center or an animal care center and hopefully get them released into the wild soon after they recover.
0: Okay, so you gather data and how does that how does that help?
1: Well, ultimately, the data helps us to have conversations with these buildings um, which either, helps on a on an individual basis sometimes the buildings will listen to us as an organization and change their ways i think the javits center is a really good example they um this was before i started volunteering but i always they're always our number one success story they were the number one top bird killer based on the data in the city and they went through a renovation in 2013 and because we had been reporting this data to them and telling them we're finding, you know, dead birds and it's your fault, they took that information into consideration and they, during the renovation, fixed all of their windows. And it reduced the number of collisions by around
0: 90%. How do they fix that? How do they uh, uh, they put you know, Falcons on the windows are less reflective windows or what do so they do? So there's a
1: bunch of different um, solutions that the New York City Audubon partnered with um, the, uh, what organization? Uh, an organization who I should probably know. Um, they partnered to come up with solutions for these large scale buildings. And in some cases, it's as simple as putting decals on the inside of the windows and in some cases, it's a total okay. I'm at a total um, revamp of the uh, that glass would be necessary. So I'm not actually 100% sure what the Javits Center did during that renovation, but it can range to a really easy fix to something that's more structural.
0: Sure. Uh, y- you would think maybe less reflective glass somehow would yeah, be Yeah, less reflective the answer, glass
1: but- is, is key. Um But also, as long as the bird can see a a pattern of some kind, they'll avoid them. I think um, it's something like four four inches apart, like striped patterns of any kind, vertical or horizontal, will do the trick. And that applies to um, your home as well. That's the common advice we give to people who are concerned, but don't maybe live in a city and and don't have the issue on this scale.
0: So some sort of pattern or some opaque pattern aspect of the window that birds don't want to run into yep, exactly. kind of is a big help. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems relatively easy. What what is happening in terms of the lights? I mean, a lot of us I've certainly seen the the 911 lights in the air kind of craziness of birds thousands and thousands of birds flying in circles in September uh that's been well documented with that, but they're incredible amount of light pollution in our world. Uh, is any progress being made on that? Um, that's a great
1: question. I know that, I mean, you mentioned the Tribute in Light. That is one of the more high profile uh, activities that Project Safe Light does take on. I think we've been doing it since 02, which was obviously immediately after the tragedy. But um, turning off the lights is really the only way to disperse the birds. So for the Tribute in Light specifically, we sit atop of a neighboring building take our binoculars look at the lights and if there are too many birds inside trapped flying around then we have a relationship with the museum that they will work with us to shut those off for a couple minutes at a time to let the birds disperse so it's possible okay. to with with monitoring you know make sure that at least in that high profile case disperse the birds, but um on a larger scale, I don't know what really can be done other than having intermittent light shutting.
0: Yeah, it's it's it seems like a lot of the light I mean, that's a strictly I mean, that one particular thing is I mean, there's no reason there couldn't be an alternative way to celebrate than shining lights into the sky. Sure. I mean, that seems like it's it's not the only way you can honor the fallen heroes of that day. Uh, but uh, it seems like uh, I, I was reading that simply a flashing light is much less problematic than a steady light and that red lights are much less problematic than blue or white light in terms of attracting birds. Uh, so you'd think that there could be alternatives uh, to lighting up buildings at yeah. night.
1: I think the, the biggest barrier that at least I've seen, and this is more so on the collision side of things, but I would imagine it applies to lights too, is just a, a sort of corporate ignorance or willingness to look the other way, maybe. At least for the for the Goldman building, which again is one that I'm at every Wednesday morning. I, I right. have tweeted at them. I know that the New York City Audubon has made contact with them and and they just don't seem to care. They don't want to change because it costs X amount of dollars and you know the the only way to get around that is to pass new laws, which is something that that yeah. the Project Safe Flight data has also helped to impact too.
0: I would suspect city ordinances could go a long ways towards that. There should be some way to incentivize that, but you know, pop- yeah money talks and lobbies are powerful. It sounds like you're doing great work in terms of data collection. I was reading uh, that certain species that use flight calls are much more at risk than some other species. I have have not. Tell me more about that. This is what happens. It seems like it was an article came out of Chicago this year, actually, uh, that when birds are flying, uh, a lot of birds have flight calls, you know, connection. They talk to each other. Little chip calls. Some birds don't so much, and some birds do. And it sounds like there's a much higher incidence of collisions with buildings that are lit with, on species that are that talk to each other. They, they actually call them super colliders. <laughs> sounds of a silly thing to say, but it seems like a bird will see the light and it excites them, and they start making more chip notes than normal, and that is a signal to other birds to come this is and so they tend to one bird will get the light and it starts chipping more and more birds come and it congregates the birds in the area of the light and you know magnifies tremendously wow. the amount of collisions and deaths of those species so there are certain species that are much more at risk than other species that a bird might be attracted to the light, but maybe other birds go right on by. But if that bird that's attracted to the light gets excited and starts chipping, uh says, oh, the other birds come over and see what's going on, and a whole bunch of them collide instead of just a few of them. So I thought that was that pretty is very interesting, interesting data. Alex, what other uh, projects are you involved in? And, and first of all, how did you become involved in this project? What what got your passion up?
1: Yeah, so um, it's it's a little bit of a long story. Well, not really, but a complicated one. So I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And as I was uh, wandering around my neighborhood when I first moved here, I came across an establishment in my neighborhood called the Wild Bird Fund. And I walked in and they were hosting an open house for volunteers. It was there that I actually started learning about the issue, the bird collisions, the injuries, the treatment process and all that. Um, Because the Wild Bird Fund is actually the only animal rehab center in Manhattan. So I can believe that. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a tiny little room. They've got a little basement where they keep mostly pigeons, but of course, any other birds that come through the doors. Um, so I volunteered there actually first for a little bit. And it was very hands-on, um, maybe a little too hands-on for me, a little claustrophobic down there. But they do such good work, and I wanted to try and make a difference in a different way. And through my time volunteering there, I became familiar with all the sources of organizations that feed them birds. So it's a lot of parks people and police coming in with animals that they've rescued, but it's also the Project Safe Flight group, which is where we are directed to bring all of the birds that we find. So I I switched sides and I, I started volunteering on the Project Safe Flight side as opposed to in the hands-on rehab facility. Um, so... Okay, yeah, that that was a different a different perspective.
0: Attack more the root problem than the uh, you know piecemeal trying to fix the problem. Yeah, so, that's right. That's cool. Uh, so you got And so you've been pretty involved in that over a period of time. How how big is that movement? How many New York City people are involved? I believe we have about twenty five
1: to maybe thirty volunteers every season. And there are, so as I mentioned, my route is the downtown west route. There's also a downtown east route and a route that covers the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, there's one actually over in Brooklyn now. It's our first time doing, there's a hotel in, I think, Brooklyn Bridge Park that is particularly problematic. So that route was added this year.
0: Okay. So you got across the river. Very cool. Uh, so, uh, so you do that in your experience, is fall migration or spring, spring migration more of an issue or, or does it seem about the same? Um,
1: that's a good question. I would say for me, fall has been probably more of an issue. I see it, it's very dependent, at least it has been for me on how early I can get down there. So you're obviously the, the ideal time to go is right as the sun is rising and,
0: Right at the yeah. Of dawn. Sure. Sometimes
1: that isn't always possible with my schedule. <laughs> but um, I, the earlier I go, the more I find um, before the custodians and the janitorial staff yeah, had, the a, had a sure. chance to get them out of my sight. But early in the fall, like the month of September is is typically, I think, the worst month that I have experienced. This month, I mean, this past September in particular, there was one day where I found Six dead birds, one injured bird, all in that one Goldman Sachs perimeter, just on one day.
0: Wow! just yeah. in one building. That's that's a lot. Yeah, I I was reading. It sounds like the estimates are up upwards of six hundred million birds killed every year in just in yeah. the United States from collision with buildings. That's that's yeah. a lot of birds. That's a lot of birds. I mean, I I when I read the the article recently on the the decline in bird populations. I want to say the total population of songbirds in the the Americas maybe 10, 10 billion. So six hundred. That's you know six percent, seven percent of those birds get killed every year in collisions with buildings. Yeah, that's significant a lot. amount. Yeah, it's not insignificant at all. Uh, so I I am hopeful that we can find ways to incorporate into as new buildings get built, they should have to take that into account. I mean, it just seems logical to me. It's expensive to retrofit things. It's not so expensive to do it right in the first place. So you would think that it shouldn't be that hard uh, to, uh, you know, address that in the initial building of these skyscrapers, but maybe that's, you know, pie in the yeah, sky. Yeah, well,
1: there is, I mean, there's some movement in terms of legislation too that's working to address that. There's a bill here called the Bird-Friendly Glass Bill that is actually, I think, an amendment to the New York City Building Code that would require bird-friendly glass on any new buildings or, I think, any substantially altered buildings, which I don't know what the definition of that would be, but um, it would be a start, I think.
0: If they were true. I would think if they have to replace the windows, that would be a substantial alteration, I would assume. Well, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's good. Hopefully, the Birds in our part of the world will survive long enough to wait for those yeah. buildings to get retrofitted. We'll see, uh, but anyway. So, what other birding activities do you do? You're involved in that. Uh, I do. do. You get out to Central so, Park
1: I it? Central Park really is what got me back into birding. I, as a kid, I grew up in Connecticut in the, in the backwoods, and I always spent a lot of time looking out into my backyard. We had right. a bunch of feeders. I had binoculars. And for whatever reason, I kind of lost touch with the hobby. I think I, well, I went to school in Syracuse and then I moved to New York and I just, I I didn't really know so much of the bird cultures in either of those two places at the time. But actually a, a peregrine is what, is what I think got me back into it. I remember I was at work in my office, downtown close to, on the West side, close to the Hudson. And in the middle of a meeting, a peregrine just landed on the roof of the building across the street, absolutely tearing into Uh a fish. It was like this visceral bird moment. And I was taking pictures, telling all my coworkers. It was was amazing. And very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was, it
0: was, I
1: mean, a readily available food source, I'd imagine, but I realized that I had no idea of the bird life in the city. I didn't. I didn't know much about the peregrine population. And luckily, I lived next to Central Park at the time, so I had the perfect backyard to jump back in.
0: Very nice. I cut my birding teeth in Central Park a little bit. I was. Li- I was. Uh, I was in the army. I was stationed at West Point, and when I when I met my uh, wife to be, she was living in in the Upper East Side, and. Uh, she was a bird watcher so we would go to Central Park and I, if I look back at my life list a lot of my life birds came yeah. from Central Park in that first uh, first year of birding uh, the oh, reservoir yeah. the reservoir in the winter is wonderful and and the I want to say the bramble the ramble I say ramble I always say that wrong the ramble is just a one, wonderful place to go I spend a lot of time there can still remember my first spring there when I I was just boggled at how many birders there are. I mean, I thought, yeah, it's just KME. It's not another birder in the world, you know? Uh, and then about April rolls around. All of a sudden, if you go to Central Park on a sunny Saturday, there's just hundreds of people around every tree. It was just wonderful.
1: Yeah. It's amazing too. It's been really helpful as I've gotten back into it. I'm I'm one of those birders who has a camera and I kind of, use that as my binoculars, which I know is, is,
0: uh, that is the way young birders go. Yeah. It's a little bit of a
1: faux pas in the community, but, uh, that's, that's the way I do it. But it's been really great to have so many birders around as just resources and helping me ID, helping me find my way around the ramble, which is can be very difficult when it gets particularly, uh, full of foliage. But, um, I've, re- I've tried Riverside Park, and it's really just not the same. You don't get that same energy. Central Park's the
0: way to go. Central Park rocks, especially in the spring. Yeah. It's just so cool. Uh, did you know uh, Star Sapphire, the kind of a s- older, older lady? Were you birding when she was still I around? I don't think
1: so. It doesn't Probably ring a bell. Not. I may have crossed paths.
0: Uh, she was uh, a woman who for 40 years led birding trips in Central Park in the spring, uh, pretty much all through migration every single morning. And had big groups follow her and I got to go out with her in her last year before she died of cancer. And she was still, even at probably close to 80 years old, she had perfect ears. She knew every chip note, every call, every song. It was just wonderful to see her passion. And uh, it was so cool.
1: That is amazing.
0: If you haven't seen it, uh, the central park effect is a, is a documentary movie and you have. Yes. To see
1: I've that. been told that it is, is on my list.
0: It, it needs to move to the
1: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right after this, I will, I'll let you know.
0: So Alex, do you have other things you wanted to make sure we covered today? You'd mentioned some uh, issues of communication among birders and, and, uh, and social media yeah, issues. Yeah. I think,
1: you know, something I like to to talk about and bring up, I, I work, I'm not a biologist or anything like that. I work in communications. Um, so something that I've found as I've regained my passion and started engaging with the community and the New Yorkers, the Brooklynites. Is that I feel like science communications and communications about not just the things we're passionate about, but the things that we want other people to know about our passions, like Project Safe Flight, is I think something that's just so important and that I'm happy to see on going on on social media. Um, you know, on the nonprofit side, I know how hard it is for some of them that have such limited resources to be able to really dedicate time and, and people to, to having those conversations online. But I think for me, it's such an important thing to talk about, especially when it comes to engaging the younger generations like myself, I'm a millennial and Gen Z even, because um, I think you have to reach the younger generations where they are already existing to try and get them into other places that they might not yet exist. And I think that accessibility has been really important for me as as a young birder and
0: activist. Online communication among young birders is just, that's what's happening. I mean, there are birding groups, uh, the young birders of, you know, the, California has a very active young birders association. Washington has informal groups and and formal groups that uh, they're just dominated by under 40 and usually under 30 birders, even under 20 birders a lot of times. So. Uh, you know, Facebook groups and Twitter groups, and I don't even know what other groups, but uh, a lot of uh, are very, uh, very important in terms of communication for just birding. But I suspect they are also really important in causes like your cause.
1: Yeah, it's the, the one that has particularly helped me, I think has been I don't know if you're familiar, the feminist bird club,
0: I am. I've been trying to get a uh, someone from that group on. Sounds like I have someone from it on.
1: Well, I don't think I count. I guess maybe I count as an official member. I don't know. Um, I have a patch, and I have been on a couple walks. But that—that oh, cool. that, there's a group of um, women and and men, and they host walks all over the city. And Brooklyn is where they started, I think. But they come to Central Park a lot. They do. Jamaica Bay walks. They have partnered with Audubon, and it's been so. It's it's just they just make it really accessible. No one's making you feel bad about not being able to ID something or about wanting to look at a cute cardinal for five seconds before turning to some of the other fancier species. Um, so it's been it's been great to see them grow.
0: I don't think they get a lot of fancier than cardinals. It's just
1: cool, <laughs> that's all.
0: Cardinals pretty fancy. True. Especially out, we don't have them out here. So Oh, lo- right. Always I Always love it when you go. Yeah. yeah I'm from Washington State, so yes. no Cardinals at all here. So. That
1: is how I feel about the Stellar's Jay. I I used I to make- i say ma- something. Yeah, I used to take a lot of trips to California, and I really just wish I could replace our Blue Jays with those guys. I I would trade.
0: It, it would be a fair trade. When I, my first, probably my first week I was in Washington, I saw a Stellar's Jay, and I was just- Oh, oh, look at, oh my goodness, look at that bird. It was just so beautiful. Yeah. I was kind of blown away. They are great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on, on the podcast with me today. I appreciate it. If you can hook me up with someone with a Feminist Birding Club, I would love that. Uh, get me a contact. Yes, I will put that. you in touch. And uh, I want to I want to wrap up with making a shout out to how people can uh, get a hold of the uh, Safe Flights program or help or communicate. Uh, there's there's a website. Yes. yes. Uh, is it more of a Facebook group and more of a website? How do people reach out to that? Uh, program, especially the New York based. I would one. say
1: reaching out to New York City Audubon would be the way to go. They're on Instagram and Twitter. They are at NYC Audubon, um, and then okay. us volunteers also use the hashtag Project Safe Flight to do some of that social media communications about what we do. I sometimes post photos of the birds that I find as a sort of awareness play to to educate my following who are some birders and some not, and try and do as much education as I can using that hashtag.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate you being on and you've shared a lot of fun stuff with me today. Well, interesting stuff, maybe not so much fun, a lot of it, but anyway, fun to hear about. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, that was fun, thinking about New York City. I cut my birding teeth in New York City in the 1980s. I started birding in 86 with my wife, Kay, and she spent part of her time in New York City. She had a job there. She kept a little apartment there that she used when she commuted back and forth. She did have to drive back and forth every day. And so I would visit her there a lot, and we spent a lot of weekends in New York. So I was a beginning birder, pretty passionate at that time about birding, and spent some time in Central Park. Jamaica Bay, other places like that. I look back at my life list today. I have nine lifers from Central Park. Central Park birding in the spring is just a phenomenon. It's almost like a birding festival on a nice day on a weekend. There are birders under every tree. How do you find where to go to look for a bird? You look at the tree with the most birders around it, just like a festival. Good birders will help you find things. I got my Life Canada warbler, Magnolia warbler, Blackburnian warbler, And trees in Central Park, they were just starting to bud out, so you could really see it really well. It was a terrific experience. I can remember the ramble. Kay and I spent a long time one morning trying to identify a Swainson's thrush. We had our bird book out of the Golden Guide and couldn't tell if it was a gray-cheek thruster or a Swainson's thrush. It looked like the range map covered them both in migration. We figured it out. Lifer. It was fun. Uh, so, Central Park brings back really fond memories to me, as does Jamaica Bay. Jamaica Bay is near the airport in New York and it is a fabulous wetlands area. I got my first look through a good spotting scope there. Walked up, and some fellow, a young birder, was there looking out way, way out on the mudflats and said, Do You want to see a Hudsonian Godwit? And I said, Yes, I'd love to. So, he showed me a Hudsonian Godwit through his spotting scope and wasn't long before I had a spotting scope, too. Not as good as his was, I don't think, but got my Bushnell Space Master. (laughs) It was a really cool uh, spotting scope. So, enjoyed that, and brings back fond memories of New York City, one of my favorite places. I had a good time today talking with Alex Israel. I learned a lot about the Safe Flights program and the hazards bird facing the migration. I'll leave links in the podcast notes to their Uh, site and places you can learn more about that and ways you can become active in that movement so until next time birders good birding good day